Hey friends, I'm Ashley. Hey you guys, I'm Lainey. And this is Haunted Real Estate. Hope you're listening today in a happy headspace. How have you been this week, Lainey? I've been great. How are you? Super, super duper. It's actually been a bit of a hellish week, but we're here. We're here. It's Sunday. Got a nap earlier today, so I'm feeling okay. Well, good. I'm glad you are. So, question. If you lived in a spooky house, maybe it's haunted or maybe it's just like got a spooky vibe, what feature would you want the most? I'm going to give you options. Okay. A secret passageway, so that would be like hidden corridors uh, to add a little mystery to the house, whispering walls telling of centuries past, or antique furniture from past inhabitants that all have a story to tell. I'd go with whispering walls. (laughs) Just want that company? Yes. (laughs) Just... Somebody talk to me, please. I love antique furniture. So I think I would say antique furniture, even though I do like a hidden corridor too. Like literally all of them sound like a so if you cool si- part of a haunted house. If you sit on an antique chair, is it going to tell you it's history? Or like I sit in it and I just know it's history. Like okay. I know the 75 butts and farts that have <laughs> been on that. I just imagine like you sit on a grouchy old man, just like, <laughs> excuse oh, me. Hello there. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's just like I sit in it. I'm like, and I can know it's past history, like, you know, hundreds of years or I don't know. Okay. That's pretty cool. So today's story stumbled in my lap. I was just perusing the internet and came across an article of a home in New York. And you know, I love a good historical house, but this one goes under the nickname House of Death. So that kind of had my attention that kind of has my attention too and i was like what is this house of death what is it so after some research it is supposedly haunted with at least 22 ghosts why some people say that the property is cursed and it curses all who inhabit it oh um so let's just get right into it so the home is located on 14th west west 10th Street in Greenwich Village in New York. Mm -hmm. It's a pre-Civil War brownstone built around 1856. It's in one of New York City's idyllic neighborhoods around Washington Square Park. Ooh, nice. Yeah, really nice. Like, definitely, I don't know why I thought about it, because I know they didn't film it here, but it made me think of, like, the Friends water fountain scene, just like it's 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 a pretty big hub in New York. So, obviously, it didn't start out as the house of death at the time. They just That would be unfortunate. That would be. Like, we built it come to the house of death (laughs) nah i'm good it was just known as number 14th because it's 14th west 10th street so so i'm gonna refer to it throughout today as number 14 okay plus that gives it like an eerie vibe like number 14 so this home now has a very dark past so let's get into it. First of all, like we said, it was built in a time where our country was in deep turmoil. Brother against brother, we were severely divided in this country. More than today, believe it or not. So the home, uh, from its inception, was built into a sad time in our history. So you, if you believe in its history being able to leave a sort of dark energy behind, then quite possibly that's where it all started. It's just like the grounds of it had a vibe. Mm-hmm. So I should also mention a little something about 
Washington Square Park. Remember, the home is right across the street from the park. Many may not know this today, but there are 20,000 bodies buried under Washington Square Park. Dang. From the Civil War? No, I will... Tell you, it's actually predates Civil War. Okay. So New York City purchased this plot of land in the 1790s, and it's the eastern two-thirds of Washington Square Park. They purchased it for $4,500, where, quote, the bodies of the poor and unidentified New Yorkers were unceremoniously dumped in mass graves, end quote. Wow, so that's it sad. was not a park to start out with. It was a mass grave, and that's what its intention was. And then they later decided to put a park on top of it. Okay, so, wow. You're walking your dog or taking a jog with your friends and you're just yeah. walking all over dead people? Just uh, some it's of it like, exactly might be like... what I say about all of the land of the U.S. That yeah. we're always walking on dead people. It's... Yeah, you, know, you don't know. You could be. All right. So the land was initially purchased to bury 5,000 bodies. Like I said, it was initially... Initially... <laughs> It was, it was purchased with the intention to bury. These kinds of burial sites are known as potter's field, but um, that's a, it didn't go as planned. You know, they planned for 5,000 bodies, but a yellow fever epidemic hit New York in the summer of 1797, 1798, 1801, and 1803. And just a little bit on yellow fever, 60% of those infected with yellow fever died from the illness. So it was pretty, pretty deadly. That's a, that's a high mortality rate. Yeah. Just a little visual of yellow fever. It starts as fever and chills, which then turns into aches and vomiting. Within a few days, your skin turns yellow as you become jaundiced and you begin vomiting black bile and then your organs begin to shut down. Sounds so unpleasant. Yeah. It sounds absolutely horrible. So it's a terrible illness that came in four waves into New York City. And since city officials feared the spread of the disease so much for the time, Washington Square Park was the mass burial site for all of the yellow fever victims. So rich or poor, it didn't matter, like, you ended up getting buried there. But it was, like we said, for poor and unidentified New Yorkers. But once the yellow fever hit, there were people there. It didn't matter how much money you had. They wanted to keep them away. Wow. So in 2015, a subterranean room was discovered underneath Washington Square Park with several coffins of adults and children. In several projects done in and around the park, they have come across many skeletal remains. So that 5,000 that they intended on burying turned into 20,000 bodies um, that just ended up getting dumped in graves, but like mass graves. So most of these bodies are buried under the grass and pavement of the park. At the time uh, when this was being utilized for mass burial, it was much more of a rural area. So it wasn't like this mass grave in the middle of a bustling city. It was, you know, considered a rural part. Also adjacent to Washington Square Park at the time was a prison. So conveniently, since there was already a mass grave there, they also hanged many prisoners at the same site. Wow. So there's supposedly an elm tree that's estimated to be 350 years old at the northwest entrance to the park that was once used to execute or hang criminals. Okay. So supposedly 20 thieves, quote unquote, hung from the branches. And the man behind the hanging is Marquis de Lafayette, who was a a Revolutionary War commander. Sorry. He's known to also haunt the park, but mostly near the location of where the hangings were. And it's said that he is still watching the tree, very satisfied in his handiwork as criminals hung for their crimes. That's gross. I don't like the thought of you thinking like... 
I am really pleased with myself today. Yeah, that guy's dying. Yeah, like, I would like to know that even though, like, that's a thing, yeah. I know I know there's executioners, I know that's part of the job. I don't like to think that they enjoy that part of it, though. I know, you hope that they, you know, go home and cry about it at least. Yeah, something. like, feel something. Yeah. So, there had been gallows that were constructed near the fountain. Where the fountain is today is where the gallows were. Oh, wow. And that's where the hangings happened. So, one in particular hanging was that of Rose Butler. She was a 19-year-old slave in 1918. She was executed because she reportedly tried burning down her master's home while everyone was asleep, including the family. While no while no one was killed in the attempt, she was promptly arrested and hanged at the gallows where her ghost is also a very heavy presence in Washington Square Park. So she can be seen, it said swinging in the breeze on stormy nights. I'm guessing that's just like floating around. But since she was hanged, I don't like that they said swinging. I hope that's not yeah, what they mean. I probably do. Swinging from the tree. But those were the words used. Okay. Um, so Rose Butler was the last person hanged in Washington Square Park. In 1825, the mass grave site was transformed into a park by New York Mayor Philip Hone. Uh, they decided this was the perfect location for a public park. And at the Sounds t- perfect. <laughs> yeah, exactly. As time went on, people basically forgot that there were bodies buried underneath their feet. Um, it wasn't until the 1960s that they basically rediscovered that the park was a grave site when maintenance workers were lowering a shaft into the ground when they hit a roof of an underground chamber. And turns out that chamber was filled with the skeletal remains of 25 people. And in 2009, an actual tombstone was found belonging to James Jackson. So remember, it was a mass gravesite for poor and unidentified, so there weren't many headstones. Mm-hmm. The fact that he had a headstone already went to show that, like, he had some money. That makes me so sad that we forgot about it. Like I know. Like, it, no matter how old it is. If a huge pandemic came to us, and we all died like it's so sad that 100 years from now we might not be remembered yeah like even the event like they might not remember like your specific body is there but like the event that caused this mass grave like oh i forgot about all those people yeah that's really sad so james jackson the tombstone that was found in 2009 was uh he was an irish born man that was 28 years old when he died in 1799. So like I said, the gravestone does indicate he was pretty wealthy, but because he died due to yellow fever, he was forced to be buried in that site. Mm. So circling back to 14th West 10th Street, this is what lies just across the street. So it already has a spooky history. So like Civil War times, and then these several years of thousands of I said in then, okay, vice versa, because they didn't happen in that order. But 20,000 bodies buried just across the street. So, you know. It's not not going to be a happy place. It's spooky. (laughs) Yeah. The area has for sure seen some things. So let's talk about the first family that we know that occupied the house of death. Mrs. Johnson had been married to the founder of the Metropolitan Underground Railroad and Broadway Underground Railroad, James Borman Johnson. Okay. They were very well to do at the time. Did they build the house? No. Okay. It uh, Because they ended up moving. Actually, I'm not sure when they ended up moving. I'm not sure they built it, though. Do we know who built it or Mm, no? I don't know who built it. So he also was known for founding the 10th Street Studio. So upon his death, his widow and children moved to West 14th, 10th Street. 14th West, 10th Street. I think I said that backwards. (laughs) So this family was very prominent. Uh, They did not come out publicly and declare that there were ghosts in the home. And they wouldn't even if they were because they were a prominent wealthy family. And you don't want to go out being like... My house is haunted because that might that might make gonna, you sound less than. Going to be crazy and shunned from the community. Yeah. 
normal things. Oh my God, do you know what I just thought of? What? Shun the non-believer. What is that? Oh my gosh, you don't remember that old YouTube video? No. Shun the non-believer. Sounds like South Park. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. You said shun and all of a sudden a memory came back. Okay. Yeah, they, they would be shunned from their social group. But there definitely were rumors going around even during this time that they were, uh, that they had confided into friends and family that things happened inside that house that could not be explained. And like many families that come in and out of this residence, uh, the Johnson family did not stay long. The next inhabitant was a cycling celebrity named Fred H. Andrew. Uh, He was the new owner of number 14 in 1897. Like we said at the beginning, many people believe that the the home is cursed and it curses people that live within it. Mm -hmm. Um, So I don't know anything specifically that happened to him maybe in the house, but the celebrity cyclist found his bad luck one day when he was cycling and hit an eight-year-old boy. Oh, no. Um, The boy ended up with a broken leg and Andrew was arrested. And I guess he never came back after that. Like, he just went to jail. Um, And I don't know how that ended. Okay. But only a few years later, in 1900, the next resident moved in. Samuel Clemens, a.k.a. Mark Twain. Oh. So that's what one of the biggest things the property is famous for is Mark uh, Mark Twain. Uh, So the property did have rumors about its paranormal activity. So he was aware that there was paranormal activity rumored to be going around in number 14. He lived there for just over a year. So he is known to be a ghost. And there was a famous sighting of him in 1930 by both a mother and a daughter that said his ghost was sitting near a window in his suit he has like a like a white suit that he is usually wearing mm-hmm. with his wild hair. Um, just looking out the window, and then he said, "My name is Clements, and I got a problem here. I gotta settle." Mm. Uh, before then, he just disappeared. What's he gotta settle? So what he maybe had to settle that people because th- this is like a famous thing that he he said he was going through depression and bankruptcy at the time, mm-hmm. and so it may have had to do with like his financial problems. Okay, that he could have been referring to. So what's kind of funny is that Mark Twain is a known paranormal skeptic, but he did have a possible paranormal event. One night, sitting by the fire, Twain noticed a piece of kindling wood floating in the air near the fireplace. Twain, who says he didn't believe, even though he said he didn't believe in ghosts, like what happens next makes me think, okay, you were a little paranoid. Mm-hmm. Um, so he saw the kindling wood moving by itself, so he shot at it with a pistol, which like overreaction much. Yeah, that's a little Can you bit. imagine something floating in your house and you're just getting your gun and shooting? it no i know we're from texas but that's not a regular thing so anyway i don't know if you're a non-believer or not it's a pretty heavy reaction for somebody who says they don't believe yeah so the wood fell to the floor where there were it was left with a few drops of blood nobody human or animal was discovered to explain the event so we don't know where that blood came from twain believes it was a rat and refused to believe that there was anything supernatural going on he had his bout of bad luck like i said living in number 14 probably one of the worst times of his life uh, between bankruptcy and depression and trying to get out his writings and make money so there could have been a dark energy there yeah sounds like it so even though he supposedly haunts the location he did not die here i felt like i should mention that he passed away in connecticut other mark twain sightings are usually him in his white suit the one you see in a lot of the photos he's often on the first floor near the staircase in number 14 so between 1900 to the 1930s new york city was rapidly growing the city was growing faster than it could keep up with 
with as far as housing goes. So especially getting into the Great Depression, the brownstone did not become like a, or it didn't stay like a home for the wealthy. They ended up turning it into multifamily units. Mm -hmm. And that was happening to most of the the brownstones in New York. Um, And in 1937, 14th West 10th Street officially became a multifamily unit instead of just like one townhome, large townhome mansion. Yeah, you still hear, I I want a brownstone in New York. Like it's still of higher class. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so, and of course, because the Great Depression, like housing was in more demand, but also affordable housing. Mm -hmm. Um, And then people living in these huge brownstones with all the space during the Great Depression did not make them look great. Okay, so 1957, actress Jan Bryant Bartell moved in with her husband on the top floor of the building. Uh, This was the former servants' quarters. Um, She had moved here from just next door on 16th West 10th Street. Why did she move? Well, Jan Bartell felt and saw a lot of paranormal activity in number 16. So she was like, as soon as they could, they found another uh, living situation, which was just next door in number 14, which is pretty unlucky for her because things weren't much different. So her husband was definitely a skeptic to all things paranormal. As they entered the new apartment, new to her, uh, she felt a, quote, monstrous moving shadow that loomed behind her. Ooh, a monstrous moving shadow. Yeah. Uh, Sounds dangerous. It does. And I think it follows her. So she turned and saw nothing, but felt like she was being watched. That feeling had scared her so much that she had had several cigarettes and a tea with brandy to shake off the feeling. So she said she was a target to spirits, that she had second sight. She also claimed the icy hands of the house's former inhabitants were reaching out to her from the afterlife, which like... That's really scary. I feel that when you say that. Like, I literally... I'm not saying, like, I know how you feel, but I'm like, but I sense how you feel. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, like, I'm imagining it. I don't like it. So she often heard strange sounds, saw visions, and felt a constant feeling of dread and fear. Like many paranormal experiences, they start with just the little things. She described hearing footsteps behind her and when she, footsteps would follow her whenever she'd walk up the stairs. So she also would feel a brush up against her neck or her back, which is extremely unsettling. Mm -hmm. She often got strong whiffs of the scent of something rotting. And obviously that's often more associated with something that's more than just a ghost. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying. So she often saw shadows when no one was around. In number 14, they had a chair that their dog would growl and bark at as if somebody was sitting in it some kind of invisible entity that's creepy so bartell would come home and find furniture had been moved around uh sometimes she would hear sudden sounds of glass crashing all around her oh gosh that's frightening yeah can you imagine and then you probably look crazy because you're reacting to the sounds of glass crashing like like covering your ears or whatever and yeah like nothing's happening jan what's happening what's (laughs) going on and she said there was often this was weird rotting food on the table the rotting food just would appear. At one point, she saw a vision of a man in the front of her, an apparition, and so she reached her fingers out to touch this apparition, and she described this experience. She called it a substance without substance. Her fingers froze at the tips. She said it was numb yet tingly. It was around this time that she wanted to make the ghost disappear. So she called a medium and a paranormal expert. The medium came into the home and it was the medium coming into the home. She said that she felt the presence of 22 spirits in the house. 
including some people under the floorboards, which did not get confirmed. Oh. I'm like, we going to check on that or yeah. we're just going to go with it and move on? That's really good. I mean, maybe that's not a cause to rip up the floor. I would, but Go ahead and rip me. up the floor. I know. Like, even if you're a renter, you're like, but can I rip up the floor? So unfortunately, even though the home was taking a toll on Bartel's mental health, her and her husband couldn't move. There was there was a serious housing shortage in New York during this time. So they were forced to remain at number 14 for a total of seven years. Oh, seven more years? Seven seven total years. How many after? (laughs) That sucks. Yeah, seven total. So towards the end of their stay at number 14, Bartel and her husband tried performing an exorcism on the house, but apparently didn't work and they ended up abandoning their apartment, breaking their lease before it expired. Oh dear. So, I mean, they were scared for sure. Yeah, sounds like it. They just left. So Bartel wanted to write a manuscript documenting her experiences at number 14. And her book did get published called Spindrift Spray from a Psychic Sea. And it was published just weeks before she committed suicide in 1973. Oh, no. So there's a lot of debate about Jan Bartel. Like, was she a neurotic like housewife? Because I, I did not read the book, but... Apparently, a lot of comments on the book was she stayed home a lot. Like, she was supposedly an actress, but it sounded like she stayed home a lot and maybe just spent a lot of time cooped up and suffered from depression. Or other people say that she did have the gift of second sight, but was too scared of the paranormal and basically just, like, let it consume her. Got it. So, that's Jan Bartell. That's really sad. So, it was in the 1980s that a murder took place in number 14. Uh, So, let's get into this tragedy. You're going to regret saying Okay. So a young 19-year-old mother, Michelle, I'm just going to use her first name, went to 46-year-old criminal defense attorney Joel Steinberg to help find a suitable home for her daughter, Elizabeth, around 1981. Michelle paid him $500 to find a loving family, and when Steinberg was unsuccessful, he told Michelle that he would take in Elizabeth and him and his live-in girlfriend, 45-year-old Hedda, would care for her. Hedda was seemingly a good fit as a mother. She was an editor and author of children's books for Random House publishing company oh nice so seemed like she liked kids they were an upper class didn't she's a confusing person (laughs) i'll say that so they were an upper class well-educated couple with the means to care for little elizabeth so joel steinberg was also former air force lieutenant and graduate of new new york university law school after adoption elizabeth's name was changed to lisa steinberg so the couple also unlawfully adopted a baby boy from an 18 year old mother they named the boy mitchell steinberg The boy wasn't 16, though? He was 16 months old. Okay. And his mother was 18 years old. Okay. So they adopted him. After years after having Lisa Steinberg, she was probably around five when they adopted Mitchell Steinberg. Okay. So things initially on the surface seemed like they were an ordinary family living in New York City. But in reality, Hedda and Joel were more like a sadomasochistic couple that should probably not have been allowed to have children. At least not Joel. So Joel was emotionally and physically abused. Before leaving for a party, little Lisa, six years old, asked her adopted father, Joel, if she could come too. He then took what we presume was a rubber-headed hammer and smashed Lisa's head. Oh my gosh, just tell her no. You don't have to kill her. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah, for sure. (laughs) 
I know. Like, it's so ridiculous. that Like, there's just no excuse. Yeah. So she was initially left on the bathroom floor where the event took place, and Hedda did not move her. She waited until Joel returned to the apartment where she first joined him in doing some cocaine and then literally said something to the, to the effect of him being in just a better headspace after he came home, do some cocaine, and then you can go wake up Lisa. Because I guess she just thought she was just unconscious on the floor and would just wake up. That's weird. There's some holes in the story. <laughs> yeah. So Lisa was an, unable to be awoken. So on November 2nd, 1987, approximately 12 hours after this happened, um, at 6.33 a.m., the police had been called to number 14 by Hedda. The couple claimed Lisa had choked on some food. Upon entry, the apartment was absolutely disgusting. They found the sink had been pulled off the wall. They found 20 crack pipes, marijuana, cocaine, oh and $25,000 in cash just all lying around. Baby Mitchell was tied to his crib, sitting. Oh in his own urine and feces and definitely had not been bathed for a significant amount of time. Oh, that's so sad. He had also been drinking spoiled milk. Oh, gosh. Blood was splattered on the walls and there was a single mattress laying on the floor of the apartment that they apparently shared. Gross. These people are nasty. Yeah. Yeah. The whole thing is just gross. Lisa, six years old, was lying naked on the kitchen floor. Remember, she was struck in the bathroom. Yeah. Was lying naked on the kitchen floor of number 14 with her hair matted and feet covered in dirt and grime. Uh, Once they got Lisa, to the hospital, they saw all of her bruises and scratches, and the couple claimed that that happened from rollerblading. Oh, God. So Hedda, while complicit in the events, also had bruises on her body. Doctors looked her over and found that she had, now Hedda is the girlfriend, Mm -hmm. slash mother, found that she had broken ribs, a shattered jaw, fractured nose, and open wounds on her legs. She was just up there doing cocaine with her boyfriend? (laughs) Well, I think what we can, uh, I just forgot the word I was going to say. Like, what we can deduce from this is she was also being abused. And she had some serious mental health issues herself. So the doctors at the hospital tried to resuscitate Lisa, which did temporarily revive her, uh, but she never actually gained full consciousness and was declared brain dead. So Lisa Steinberg was pulled off of a ventilator at 8.40 a.m. on November 5th. Um, Her heart stopped beating within 15 minutes. That's so sad. Poor Lisa. So Hedda is sort of a mystery in this whole thing. Uh, While at the very least she may not have stopped Joel's abuse on the children, it does seem that she was a very damaged person herself, both mentally and physically. So I don't want to say too much about Hedda, about what she should have done. I mean, I, I think that that's clear what we wished happened. She failed here. There's not a doubt about that. But this was also like a Stockholm Syndrome situation. Yeah. So the couple were both detained on suspicion of child abuse. And according to the law in New York, quote, both parents are equally responsible if one parent abuses a child and the other remains silent, end quote. Oh, wow. But the problem is, is Hedda was also being abused by Joel. So yes, she was equal as far as New York law was concerned, but she was also being abused. So she ended up getting some leniency in the situation uh, because it wasn't news to most of her friends or coworkers that she was being abused. They told authorities that they believed Joel and Hedda were involved in a sadomasochistic game. Uh, they tried helping her and having interventions multiple times. Hedda just would not go against Joel. Uh, Child Protective Services had been called since 1983. So for at least two of those four years, Child Protective Services went out there multiple times. Yeah. Because friends and coworkers 
coworkers or whomever uh, was worried about. They didn't know necessarily if the children were being abused, but they definitely knew Hedda was being abused. And if they were in the situation, like what's going on with the kids. Yeah. But protective services saw no proof of child abuse. So even though initially Hedda was a co-defendant with Joel, she was, this is a quote, determined that her years of abuse rendered her unable to assist Lisa when she was molested. Oh, she was molested? We think so, yes. Oh, so Hedda Joel did. Is so nasty. He's disgusting. And yeah. he is a criminal <clears throat> defense attorney. Oh, I forgot about that. Like, how dare you, sir? Yeah, that's, ugh, gross. Get to the good part. When does he die? <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> So Hedda did ultimately come to her senses and did testify against Joel in court. Many domestic violence groups and victims came to her defense. So Hedda was a witness to all the events that unfolded and she provided the narrative to what happened to Lisa Steinberg. It was also revealed that police were called to the apartment four weeks before Lisa's death on report of family violence. The police did find Hedda with multiple, Hedda, the girlfriend, Mm -hmm. uh, with multiple bruises to the face at the time when this was reported four weeks before. But ultimately, the police decided to not get involved, which really sucks. Yeah, this could have all been prevented. I mean, I don't like assuming anything with police officers and why this wasn't you know, done or whatever, but that really sucks that that could have been a life-saving opportunity. Yeah. So it was also revealed that at one point, Hedda had a nervous breakdown and went to stay with friends in Long Island for three weeks. And this was all before Lisa died. She said upon her return, she was changing Lisa's diaper and observed that Lisa had black and blue marks on her genitals. Oh. And when being questioned by attorneys, this is what she said. So attorney Ira London, did you, as Lisa's mother, take any action? Hedda, no. London, why not? Hedda, I left it up to Joel's wisdom. She has a long pause. And then she said, I wondered myself why I did not do anything about it. I don't have the answer. So Hedda admitted that she idolized Joel and did dabble in drugs. So she said she was completely under the spell of Joel and just never questioned him when she absolutely should have. Um, She ended up writing a book that was published in 2005 called Surviving Intimate Terrorism. In this book, she said she left the home six times trying to get away from Joel, but always ended up coming back. Interesting. So Joel never showed any kind of remorse for anything that he did. Because Um, he's a lawyer. Well, not because he's a lawyer. Sorry. Pause on that. I'm like... "Mm." Yeah, like maybe he doesn't want to show his cards, but he's been interviewed more recently and that man don't give a shit. Is he in jail? I will tell you. So he went as far as saying that he he never killed Lisa. It was being pulled off the ventilator that killed her, which is a pitiful excuse. Like yeah. you led her to that. You led her to becoming brain dead. Yeah. Okay, so it, th- th- you did kill her. The yes. machines are just keeping her alive right now. So he believed the only crime he committed was not seeking medical attention sooner. So on January January 30th, 1989, the jury wouldn't convict Steinberg of murder, but wanted the lesser charge of manslaughter in the first degree. And I think the reason for that was because his intent was not to murder her, which Mm -hmm. is why it's manslaughter, which is like accidental killing. So he was found guilty on first degree murder and was given the maximum punishment for the time, which was eight and one third years to 25 years in jail. Oh my gosh. And due to Hedda's cooperation in testifying against Joel and her years of abuse, she did not face legal consequences, but was sent to a mental health facility herself. In 1999, the city of New York awarded Michelle, who was Lisa's mother, $985,000 as compensation for her case against multiple agencies for failing to safeguard her daughter. Aww. 
In 2004, Hedda became a battered woman's counselor. And like I said, she went on in 2005 to publish her book. Mitchell Steinberg, remember baby Mitchell? Mm -hmm. He was returned to his birth mother after going to foster care once he was seized by authorities. He apparently thrived with his mother in Long Island. He went on to have a career in the banking industry. Joel Steinberg, he was denied parole twice. And on his third attempt on June 30th, 2004, he was paroled under New York's good time legislation. And this is basically just being released on good behavior. Every state has some sort of time earned for good behavior. Hedda went into hiding for almost two years because she feared retaliation from Joel because she went against him in court. Mm -hmm. She never ended up promoting her book in New York for fear that he would show up. Oh gosh. And according to Harlem World Magazine, Joel, as of 2017, is living the quiet life of an aging loner in Harlem. (laughs) Hitting up strangers for cigarettes and Wi-Fi connections as he ekes out a living as a disbarred lawyer. He also begs for food that's being thrown out by vendors and is a pariah. Even according to him, he is a pariah. Okay. (laughs) Um, New Yorkers know him and have even beat him on the subway, so he really can't do much by the sounds of it, and he's living a pretty terrible life. Wow, so he's still living in New York? Yeah, as of 2017. Man, I wonder if he's one of the weird guys that sang to me on the subway. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Are you Joel... Oh gosh. Yeah, it's uh he's gross. So that's the la- the the last story is tragic and officially earned 14th West 10th Street House of Death. The murder trial was all over the news during the 80s and it was a very high profile case. So my two cents on uh 14th West 10th Street, I guess I believe it's like a hub for spirits. Maybe spirits get stuck there and can't really move on. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know. I just kind of see some places like that. Residents have claimed hearing wailing in the middle of the night, footsteps at all hours, and lots of apparitions. Uh, But this house really has me thinking, if those walls could talk. Exactly. (laughs) Because, like, this is just what we know. Other things clearly happen inside. Like, what happened to the Johnson family? Like, the first family that we know of where there were rumors of it being haunted, but they weren't, like, saying anything. Yeah. What do they know? Too scary to talk about so i think we're just like at the tip of the iceberg here so is this still for rent i yeah i don't know if it's rent or purchase but it is apartments um and then they are still there that would be so much fun to go see that that would be fun to see yeah it's got a mark twain placard in front of it so here's a couple arbitrary anecdotes because i think we need a little bit of a palate cleanse before we depart and it's on washington square park so washington square park remember that fun park with twenty thousand bodies buried Mm -hmm. um it used to be a marsh with a stream that's now buried and you used to be able to catch glimpses of the stream through manholes oh that's Um, cool a fun little historical fact samuel morse uh first demonstrated the telegraph from his townhome to Washington Square Park, thus giving way to a new era of communication. So that's cool. Like they tested out the telegraph for the first time at Washington Square Park. That is neat. And then we talked about that old elm tree um, in Washington Square Park uh, where all those hangings happen. Mm -hmm. Um, It is the oldest tree in Manhattan and it's known known as the Hangman's Elm. Sometimes I try to like speak way faster than is like audible, you know, capable of. (laughs) Yeah. And this is where Rose Butler and those 20 thieves supposedly hang from. Wow. So that's all folks. If you have any experiences or stories about 14th West 10th Street, we would love to hear about it. If you would like to just send us a recommendation or an interesting real estate story, you can email us at haunted, 
repod at gmail.com. If you feel like donating to the show, our Venmo is at hauntedre. Leave us a property that you'd like us to cover in the comments and or tell us where you're from and we'll find one. Go follow us on Instagram at haunted.real.estate. And please, if you could rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform, we would so appreciate it. This helps us get more listeners like you. Thank you. And lastly, if you're looking for an agent in the Houston market, give myself or Casey a try. We'd be honored to assist you in your home buying or selling needs. Just go ahead and still email us at hauntedrepod at gmail.com so we're not throwing too much information at you. Thank you guys so much. We will see you hopefully next week. Thank you.